One is an insight into the inner drama of Hollywood, the other an attempt to create a perfected version of the original screenplay. What price Hollywood? They remade it. Hi, and welcome back to They Remade It. I'm your host, Stuart. And I'm your host, Jacob. Here we are again on this nice, chilly evening, just doing our thing. It is so cold. It's so are cold, you, oh my god. You looking forward to the Christmas season? It's upon uh, us again. Oh, definitely. I'm going to have a nice week off from work after I do, like, three days of extra work. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> That's good. I got, like, a month off right now. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, nice. Uh, I'm in the process of looking for another job, but since it's the holiday season, it's going to uh, impact hiring. You know how that is. Well, oh, yeah, maybe not directly, but... You know, I'm just waiting on people getting their pink slips at the end of the year. Yeah, that's, that's, pretty, much how, that's pretty much how it works. Yeah. Also, everyone's off, so it's like, why are we going to hire this guy and then just give him a bunch of vacation hours? Yeah, true. I mean, so. that's, that's the way the world is. Capitalism. Well, this country is... <laughs> you are our saving grace, my lord. <laughs> I pray to you at night and put money on the tray. You come down and take it away. We pray to our almighty saint, Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand. <laughs> <laughs> I throw some change into the fountain, head, and I never get it back. <laughs> Andrew Ryan is my dad. <laughs> Poppy? <laughs> okay, so <laughs> anyway, <laughs> what do you what have you been watching this week? These couple weeks, really not a lot. I've had a lot of stuff on in the background. I've been having to. I've been making Christmas gifts for the family, and I've had to like. I've had my usual MSTK, MST three K in the background. I'm trying to catch up on all those. Um, I mean, that still does count. Yeah. Yeah. And I only recently realized that they actually have the original series on Netflix as well. Not all the episodes, but some of them. They have a fair amount of the episodes as well. That, I don't know if they still have it, but the first MST3K I ever saw, I didn't get to see it when it was on TV or when it was reared on Comedy Central. But the first one I saw was for Santa Claus the movie, and <laughs> that one was on Netflix at the time. Hmm. I don't know if it still is. Yeah, I have no idea, but I've really, I've still been watching the newer one recently, which are, they're actually really good. Um, All right, but beyond that, I don't. Oh, I saw there was another. It was a Netflix special. It was called The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. It's what like what the hell is that? It's got. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the actor, but he's like in. He's in a couple random things, like he was in Oh Brother Where Art Thou as this one character, but it's. It's actually a hmm. bunch of like smaller stories. It's like a dark humor western kind of movie. Emphasis on the dark. Like it it wasn't that funny. It's just a lot of points where it's just like very abrupt and kind of sad death. <laughs> it's like it, it I think it banks a lot of its comedy on the fact that a lot of its stuff is unexpected or just like ridiculous in its like level of violence it actually is. Like there's this one scene in particular where, um, like, at a poker table, this one guy is pointing a gun at the main character. And the way the main character fixes the situation is he kicks down on the table and a board pops up and, like, like as a lever. And it knocks the 
guy pointing the gun and knocks his hand up and makes him point his gun up at his head and it sets it off. And he does that three times. It's like, it's ridiculous. And we just see a man just point blank shoot himself in the head three times and then fall over. That sounds hilarious. It's the way it's presented. It's just kind of just there. It's not even terribly funny about it. It's just kind of like, bam. Oh, that actually kind of remind. That kind of sounds like, I mean, not the shooting and definitely not the western. But have you right. ever seen the movie, uh, the movie Election, uh, with uh, Matthew Broderick and uh, Reese Witherspoon? I don't think so. I think I've seen the tail end of it. Matthew, yeah, Matthew Broderick is like a teacher at a high school, like a politics teacher or something like that. And Reese Witherspoon is a student at the school, and she's super popular, and she's running for president. And she looks up to him and is like the mm. best student in her class. But because of how popular she is, he comes to hate her and is trying to thwart her campaign for class president. It's really dark humor to the point where you're not really laughing at it. You're just like, um, I, can't, I can't believe that just happened. And you're really uncomfortable. Yeah, there's a lot that. Yeah, that sounds exactly like Buster Scruggs. And with like. I don't care about spoiling it because, like, it's not. I can't really say I recommend it because, like, it's also kind of got that low quality Netflix feel where it's like, it seems like they use a very basic editing software. Like, there's gore and there's dismemberment, but it's very blatantly CG'd in. Um, There's like this one point where there's a dad, there's like a a man and his daughter. They're out in the plains, like rounding up their herd, but then they get beset on by like a pack of. Apaches or uh, Native American or Plains Indians, and she, he says to his daughter at one point, he hands her a pistol, and she says, and he says to her, "If I go down, you don't want to get captured by them. Just point this at your head and pull the trigger." And so, at one point, he takes down most of them, but then he gets clubbed over the head, and it seems like he's dead. But then he pops back up and shoots the clubber. But then when he goes back over to his daughter, it's found that she's already shot herself, having thought that he was she was dead. And it's like the entire scene is not funny at all. It just plays <laughs> out pretty straight face, like just like like kind of just a modern kind of more realistic depiction of the old West. And it's just like, oh my god, we just see this girl just laying this like young teenage girl just laying dead in the field with a bullet wound in her head it's like fuck it's like the twilight zone it's yeah it's it's not even like surreal it's just legitimately very sad it's just like this this man walks over to find his daughter dead and he has to just wander off without his like his horse got shot and everything so he just wanders off into the distance it's like jesus christ how upsetting yeah like there is a few chuckle moments, but for the most part, it really is just a, like it just goes, "Ha ha! Sudden death is funny." It's like fucking hell. I'll have if to the, look at that. I need to look and see if it had anything to do with Seth Rogen because it feels to the, for the all the life of me like it's a Seth Rogen. Like even James Franco's in it at one point. Really? So, yeah, he has it a, like. They each like there's a bunch like I said it's a bunch of smaller stories wrapped together. At one point there is a story that has him as the lead. No, I mean it feels like a Seth Rogen thing. It kind of it really kind of does like the very just like like just quick punch sort of like kind of punchline where it's just like the punchline is ah it's just literally just someone clapping in your ear. Hmm, how <laughs> often do they say fuck? 
surprisingly little. Hmm. It's pretty. It's actually pre- like that's a, that's kind of the uh, added surrealness to it that they're actually very eloquent and pretty low with uh, vulgarity, but it's still very brutal. I will have to find this movie. Yeah, yeah it's it's a Netflix special. It's Ballad of Buster Scruggs. It's I saw it advertised on my feed forever, but I guess it's just because I watch a lot of westerns. All right. Yeah, after I've taken four freaking ever to explain mine, you watched anything? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have done nothing. I've watched like nothing. Oh, well, all right. Then. I feel <laughs> I great. Feel so the only thing that I can comment on is for the past two weeks, I've just listened to, I can't even say a specific YouTuber. I've just been listening to video after video by countless different people where they just read true horror stories and that's it. I do huh. that every now and again, but I guess that's but that's like a podcast or like a radio style thing. It's I haven't actually watched anything. Have, I'm sure I've recommended it to to you before. Have you watched listened to uh, Lore, the podcast? Yeah, I I actually have. Uh, okay. I have, I think twenty episodes in the backlog. I I'm starting to get a backlog on a lot of the podcasts I'm subscribed to, just mm. because. Uh. I've been doing a lot of stuff where it's not easy to listen to a podcast here recently, so I need to get caught up on all of that. But right. yeah, I like lore. I like the the creepiness of it, and mm-hmm. they talk about cryptids every now and again, and I like cryptids, so. It's pretty cool. I, I need to catch up on it myself. I haven't listened to it in a few months. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess that's it. We were both kind of lame this time around. Well, yeah. at least you actually watched something. Well, I mean, fair enough. But that was mostly just in the background. Well, it was there. <laughs> All right. So you want me to get into this? Yeah, go right ahead. This is your deal this time. All right, my deal. So, uh, keeping in common theme with what we've been doing the last couple of episodes, I'm going to give a synopsis of the first film, and then for the second, I'm just going to highlight some of the bigger differences that affect the story. So, starting off with What Price Hollywood, 1932, directed by George Cooker. We start off with Miss Mary Evans, played by Constance Bennett, who is a waitress that aspires to be an actress in the moving picture business, and she soon gets her chance when famous director Maximilian Carey, played by Lowell Sherman, dines at her diner one evening. Being drunk, he takes her out to Grauman's Chinese Theater, and apparently the two of them have some fun over the course of the evening. The next morning, not remembering the previous night, he finds Mary in his home as she helped him get back, and she reminds him that she was promised a screen test with him. He relents. At said screen test, Mary fails to deliver, and Max calls it for the day. Worried she'll be replaced, she spends all night practicing the scene in her... the scene in her screen test, and immediately goes back in and succeeds, as determined by producer Julia Sachs, played by Gregory Ratoff, and she is signed a contract. She soon later, after filming quite a bit, meets polo player Lonnie Borden, played by Neil Hamilton, and they fall for one another in a series of do-they-fall-for-one-another scenes. In that that 37 form of, sorry, 1930s version of, you know... Is this acceptable by today's standards? The answer is a hard no. (laughs) No, nowhere close to that. But, as it is the 1930s, they soon enough get married, and it only propels Mary higher into the spotlight via the tabloids. 
However, it's soon revealed that Lonnie cannot stand to roll with the Hollywood crowd, and after one particularly bad night for Max, uh, he's a heavy drinker, Mary brings him in and Lonnie heads out. They get divorced, all the while Mary is expecting a baby. She eventually wins Best, Act Best Actress at the Academy Awards, but unfortunately her night is ruined with Max in prison for drunk driving. She pays his bail and puts him to bed in her home, only for him to kill himself via shooting later in her dressing room. Mary yeah, just kind of like you do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I... We'll talk about it. Yeah. Mary, Mary, distraught and upset with the tabloids blowing up everything, flees to Paris with her young son, now birthed, to protect him and get better mentally. Lonnie soon arrives in Paris asking for another chance, and we end there, assuming everything will be okay. <clears throat> now, moving on to A Star is Born, 1937, directed by William A. Wellman and a few other uncredited individuals who I guess punched up the script or maybe just helped in when he was sick. Yeah, the IMDb is just filled with uncredited people. Oh yeah, we'll get to that in the full circle. Like, p people that I could not find in the actual movie that we've apparently seen before in bigger roles. Hmm. Um, this picture follows the original in almost every way, with only a few differences that really affect the plot. Firstly, rather than starting with Mary working at a diner, we have Esther Blodgett, played by Janet Gaynor, who is later renamed Vicki Lester by the studio to make her more appealing to the audiences. Uh... And she lives in North Dakota, soon, uh, with the help of her grandmother, leaving for Hollywood so that she can make it big. So there's no diner there, but we'll get to that. Uh, she is helped by an assistant director uh, named Danny McGuire, played by Andy Devine. Uh, he eventually gets her work as a waitress for a big Hollywood party, where she meets Norman Maine, played by Frederick March an actor who helps her make it big, while in the meantime his own fame is fading. He essentially takes the place of Lonnie, the husband, and Max, the director, from uh, What Price Hollywood. There is no real divorce in this film. Rather, he goes away to a sanitarium at one point in an attempt to clean himself of his al alcoholism, although the film's outcome is practically the same with Norman offing himself by walking into the sea in front of their home, committing suicide by drowning. And those are, I mean, that's really the only big difference, that yeah. sort of condensing of roles there. Uh, besides that, the the same story beats are there. Yeah, it's, just, it's kind of the only major difference is like, you know, Norman is an alcoholic, whereas Max is like a lush. Yeah, that's true. He doesn't <laughs> have any big outbursts. He sort of wobbles yeah, he's around. Just, he's just that slow simmer, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, uh, without further ado, I'm going to keep talking, because I haven't talked enough, by going into the full circle really quick, and I'm not going to linger on this one, because there are quite a few, but a lot of them we can't really, I had trouble verifying through watching, just because of how many, like you said before, how many people go uncredited in a lot of these early movies. Yeah, they are kind of dicks about that back then. Yeah. Then again, at least the credit run was short. Yeah, that's true. It's like one frame, I think. You could do it in the beginning of the movie. It was nice. So, starting off, of course, with What Price Hollywood, 1932, we have one connection, and that is to the George Clooney version of Ocean's Eleven. Um... 
this being the composer, or uncredited composer of What Price Hollywood, Max Steiner. Uh, apparently he did all the music and compositions for the film. And he's responsible for one very famous piece, uh, which in typical me fashion I don't remember being in Ocean's Eleven, and that is called uh, Molly and Johnny's Theme. I'm sure they play it in the background as like a reference. Probably. But, uh, so the piece is called Molly and Johnny's Theme. I dug into it a little bit, and apparently it's colloquially... I can never say that word. It's more well-known as the theme from the movie A Summer Place, which I actually do know. As soon as I read that title, I I was like, oh, I know that theme. And I'm going to play about 20 seconds of it right now. Yeah, it has that very, you know, elevator waiting room, kind of always sunny in Philadelphia feel to it. Definitely. I think they've actually used it in a couple episodes of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, though I I know it best from uh, the episode Homer's Barbershop Quartet from The Simpsons. Of course. Where they're having tryouts for someone to replace Chief Wiggum, and Jasper's audition piece is themed from A Summer Place, where he sings along to the tune just with the words theme from a summer place from a summer place from a summer place the theme from a summer place it's the theme ah uh, <laughs> so nice. yeah um but that's it for what price hollywood uh to be yeah, honest, there figured. weren't. A, I'm surprised yeah, there, there weren't, weren't a bunch of names like, that I. Sorry. I'm surprised there weren't going to be more with like Scarface. Well, we'll get into that. Oh, uh, well, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Th- to be honest, there weren't a lot of people in what price Hollywood. I don't think there were any actually that I knew. Mm. But a star is born. We'll uh, we'll get into that right now. Yeah. So a star is born, 1937. Let's first go into Ocean's Eleven from 1960, because that'll take no time at all. (laughs) Uh, We have one connection, the actor Joe Gray, who played a pit boss in Ocean's Eleven, and in A Star is Born played the role of Garcia. Uh, This film was actually, according to sources online, it seems to be his first film role. So, that's a thing. Hmm. Uh, moving on from there, we have one other film connection, and that's Scarface 1932. Going down the list, we oh have <laughs> we have actor Francis Ford, who played William Gregory in A Star Is Born, and in Scarface was a prison guard in the alternate ending to the movie. Ah, uh, cool. Mm-hmm, where he gets tried in court and everything. Uh, we have actor Dennis O'Keefe, who was a patron at the nightclub in Scarface. And he was a party guest in A Star is Born, I suppose, at the party that she first waitresses. <clears throat> we have actress Virginia Dabney, who played Mabel in Scarface, and she was uncredited in A Star is Born. It just lists her as being in the film, so I'm guessing it's a possible extra role. Uh, 
Probably. Uh, the most prominent one, though, that I could find is Osgood Perkins. Actor Osgood Perkins, who was Johnny Lovo in Scarface. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was Otto in A Star Is Born. Uh, and A Star Is Born was actually his last film role before oh, his damn. death. Yes. Well, what do you know? Yes. Um, it's worth noting, I don't have it written down because it was very confusing. I found reference to Vincent Barnett, I believe was his name, who was the actor who played Angelo in Scarface, who was like our favorite character in the movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, with the phone bit and everything. Apparently he was in A Star Is Born 1937 as well, but it also credits him as Otto. Hmm. Same as Osgood Perkins. So I'm not sure what's going on there. I did diving, but it was incredibly hard for me to find anything because the vast majority of A Star Is Born stuff that's going to pop up is from the Barbra Streisand version or the Garland version or the new version that just came out with Gaga and Cooper. So... God, there's too many fucking versions of this. <laughs> yeah, we have How many what, are there? Five? Like five? Yeah. We have five because we have four named A Star Is Born and then we have What Price Hollywood. So yeah. that's five That's five versions of the mo- same movie. Yep. Um, but, I mean, that's, that's, it. that's it for connections. So, as per usual with me jumping off of this segment, where do you want to take us first? Oh, man. It's just... It's it's always difficult for me to like, cause old Hollywood stuff and this this movie is steeped in old Hollywood. It is steeped and pickled in it. Both it's, of these. Yeah, like their entire point of it, which like, I wasn't expecting going into it. I don't know why I wasn't expecting it. It's a movie in the '30s. It's always going to be. It's so many movies in the '30s are about Hollywood in and of itself, which is weird to think about considering how young it still technically was like not a whole lot had really come out for it at that point uh, it had already become such a huge you know just mass of pop like pop culture and everything it's just it's so difficult to kind of wrap my head around it i guess like because i'm i'm very i've never been the type to get into like hollywood drama but that's the entirety of this movie and you definitely know that a lot better than i do Right. I wonder if a lot of that comes. I I wonder if a lot of that stems from just how mired in mystique a lot of Hollywood was to people. It was creating for the first time in probably forever. It was creating so many household names in such a short amount of time. It was so easy. Well, obviously they had a lot of work to do, but from the public's perspective, so easy for oh, I know that person, I know that person, I know that person. It, it's the same thing I assume that happened to authors. So maybe it was just natural progression for them to go into it. Maybe, I don't know the origins of the screenplay. Perhaps it was based on a particular experience Maybe uh, that someone had, and they were like, well, this is just drama. We could make this because we're making dramatic films or dramatic pictures, especially now that we have sound that we can utilize. Well, this, this, isn't uh, this basically just, isn't this kind of like the origin of that, you know, kind of now stereotypical story of young, innocent girl goes to Hollywood to make it big, learns the harsh realities of show business sort of I don't, I don't know of another movie that did that before, let's say What Price Hollywood, since that came first. 
Yeah. But there's definitely not a franchise that is more associated with that, I don't think. Right. Because that trope has been around, has stuck around, even basically unaltered in a lot of ways. Like, there was a recent movie that came out. It's um, The Rules Don't Apply. Um, it's a, like It was about uh, Howard Hughes, and it centered around these two fictional characters. Um, but it was mainly kind of to frame, you know, Howard Hughes's later period like the later period of his life as he was really kind of losing it i've not um, heard of this it's really good um i can't remember like the oh i can't remember the name of the actor in it but i'll i'll, I'll probably look it up here in a minute but it's fine i'll just i'll just it's like remember apparently like apparently the main actor who plays howard hughes was also the director and he had been apparently trying to make it for years but it really is it has that exact same framing device like the main female lead is just the young innocent girl who gets swept up into the whole Howard and like Howard Hughes you know sees her as like another potential love interest bullshit or whatever Mm. and like she becomes a very very brief you know Hughes girl and so that's what kind of kicks it all off and Mm. it's actually really good I didn't appreciate it enough when I first saw it Um, but it's just like it's just that sort of thing where that trend is basically was invented it seemingly invented i mean obviously the you know it's based off a very real trope like a lot of women and especially young girls got swept into hollywood and basically chewed up by pretty like pretty shitty directors but you know and then having it actually brought to the screen was the first time with you know what price hollywood and right like i i was actually really surprised to see how what price hollywood did it because it kind of like i was expecting max to end up being a complete bastard like it was gonna end up he was because i was thinking i i I should say like you know like on record that i actually watch these in the incorrect order i normally try to watch the original first and then the remake but i forgot what the original one's name was so i ended up watching the 37 (laughs) version first thinking that we were going to do one of the other versions as a remake like the 1954 version Right, then, it's the black sheep. Exactly. And then so I found out, oh, okay, there was actually one that was earlier. And so when I was going into it, I was thinking, okay, this um, Lonnie, is it Lonnie? Um, Lonnie's the husband. Lonnie. I thought Lonnie was going to end up player. being kind of like the comparative star. Like it, he was going to be the equivalent to, you know, Norman in the in what in um, right, you know, right. Star is Born. And so I was thinking, thinking okay he's gonna be the like guy who ends up you know offing himself like norman did he's gonna be the one who's gonna be seeing his whole career go down in flames whereas max is gonna be kind of this extra foil to the situation where he's this alcoholic dude who's gonna be making um you know the girls like he's gonna be making esther's um not esther sorry um mary's life a living hell mm-hmm. and that sort of thing but then she ends up being the you know once great and then fallen character in this arc and actually creates a really cool dichotomy like i thought it was going to go for the very you know real situation of what happened with a lot of directors back then that they really were just shitty to their actresses like you know i mean hell fucking alfred hitchcock if you want to have an example um and when it didn't, I was actually really surprised and really interested. It created a really cool relationship between Mary and Max that I, like, I actually loved a lot more than I loved between the relationship of um, 
Esther and Norman and what and a star is born. Right. Well, I mean, for the thirties being that still early in the life of cinema, it would have been, I can't imagine a director wanting to do a movie where the director's portrayed as a bad guy, regardless of how they behaved. Oh yeah. It's so, it's so early on. I can't see that being, I, I mean, prove me wrong. Maybe there's a movie out there that is around that time frame that depicts that, but I can't I mean, none that see I can it. think of. You'd know it better than I would. Right. I clear, well, I, I clearly do not. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, if you did know that, you would. Right. Uh, but no, that's actually sort of a cool jumping off point. I was I haven't seen any of the other movies in... I hesitate to call it franchise, but I'm going to because there's so many. Uh, so I don't know how 54 and on, how they do the plot, if there are big changes to it. But I'm surprised that the movies start out based around these female characters, starry-eyed, wanting to go to Hollywood, but they really put a lot of emotional investment into other, into these two male characters of uh, Max in What Price Hollywood and Norman in A Star is Born, and really it's more a story about them and them dealing with the main character's success and how it affects them, and mm. I was not expecting that. It's like they changed the main character as the story went on, and then at the end, after both of those characters meet their demise, they go back to the original main character. Yeah, it's actually... Oh, now, actually, now that I think about it, it's actually a really early case of a um, of a symmetric plot, like I, which is one of my favorite... like Which is one of my favorite storytelling tropes, where it ends as it begins, but it actually kind of switches off in kind of a yin-yang sort of deal where it has our characters our main our first main character starting off in this low place not much to be said of them and then they rise to the top all the while at the exact same at an inverse rate our once great character is falling further and further down no matter you know each each of them have up and ups and downs throughout, but they're each one is kind of mirrored off each other. Like every time there's a jump in the lead girl's popularity, there's a there's a drop in the lead man's um, popularity, and then vice versa. But it's right. actually, that's actually really interesting to see because like it means it shows at, at, in each case when they're at their peak, that mainly being when they're receiving their Academy Award. It's when the other is at their lowest, that being Norman stumbling on the stage drunk and then Max getting in the drunk tank that night. It's like, wow, oh, that's actually kind of cool to notice now. You know, that's... Because I know... I Yeah, I hadn't really considered... For theming, I know why it's there. They sort of represent this cautionary tale for the main character to relate to, I guess to make them better, because it's like, this is what stardom and fame can do to you. Uh, mm -hmm. Hollywood can either be stressful and drive you mad, or it can eat you up and spit you out with no appreciation or no regard. And that's sort of for the actress to relate to, whether it be uh, Esther or Mary. They can they can sort of look at that and see that, but they don't. I don't think they use that a whole lot. I guess it's more for the audience's sake. Yeah. Um. But yeah, storytelling wise, I think that's really that's uh it's cool, and I I think it's unique because they they really do sort of take on the role of main character. 
symmetrically to who you originally think the main character is rather than they're a secondary character that just has an emotional backstory. Right. And like I said, I, I'm interested in how the other films handle that as well, especially the most recent one that came out this year. Yeah. That apparently got rave even... reviews. Oh, yeah. I, I, I kept seeing ads all over the place for it. That's how you know it gets really good reviews is when the ads don't go away for a long time. Yeah. That's actually, that's another, like, you know, to just, like, really drag this point of it out. But I, another thing I was thinking of it with, you know, their symmetric, like, um, plot lines and how they are like just how their journeys go like being at a low point or being at a high point it's also how they're viewed in the public media within the movie like it starts off you know with Max being like this lush on the town everybody knows him everyone's talking about him versus nobody talking about Mary but at the very end as Max is, like dies and Mary as you know gets swept up into the public drama of that of the suicide it's put her at the her peak and Max at his lowest. Where it's like, oh, no one cares about the fact that Max is dead. They care about, you know, Mary being with like in the same building when it happened. That sort of thing. So it's yeah. Like, it really does make it that ultimate moment of, you know, perfect parallelism. The same sort of thing happens when Norman dies too. I don't yeah. remember a lot of tabloid stuff like press related material regarding it more so i'm thinking of when they're exiting the funeral and the fans are all around her and that one woman's like he isn't worth crying or whatever and rips her veil off oh yeah and then she screams yeah and then it even kind of like even with the last line like like the very iconic hello this is mrs norman ba- norman main like that even kind of hammers it home it's like now she has taken his place like at you know peak stardom right which like it's also meant to be like her relating back to him since she truly cared for him but it also yeah he's keeping she's keeping him alive right yeah that's actually really kind of cool to notice right and i think that works i think that works better having those characters in this instance i think that having those characters combined does better for the film right you know what i mean yeah, I, and I, did, I was kind of okay with the character being combined, though I was a little confused by the addition of having, oh, what was the, the uh, the assistant director's name? Um, uh, uh, uh Danny McGuire. Oh, Danny Wait. McGuire. Yeah, Casey yeah, was, uh, the other Casey <laughs> in the original movie. Oh. Uh, yeah, like, uh um, Carrie. But, it, but yeah, like the the assistant director guy that she meets in like the boarding house, like I kind of thought that was a little weird to have in there as well, because like it ended up not being too necessary. Where he basically is not in the plot nearly at all by the end. Like it was really just kind of meant to be the kickstarting action of getting her actually involved in Hollywood, which like I guess makes sense. But it also kind of seems like just seems like it was kind of shoehorned in. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that was strange. It went well because I watched What Price Hollywood first. I thought he was going to be play the role of Max. Right. I that's especially what I thought, with that that's what voice. I Max, it sounded sorry. Uh, like uh, I was just gonna say, like I was thinking the exact opposite. Like I saw it in the opposite direction. So I saw Max, and I was thinking, okay, he's gonna be like the background character as Lonnie becomes the main focus. Right. But then he was. I 
yeah, I, I guess it's just the way the actor talks. I haven't seen him or heard him in anything else, but this Andy Devine that played Danny McGuire, I believe I've heard his name before, but uh, just the way he... Western. His IMDb pop- shows him in a cowboy outfit, so... Okay, that that's probably it then, because I I don't watch a lot of Westerns, but oh, just yeah, the he was, way he... he was in Stagecoach. Oh, okay. Yeah, alongside I haven't John seen Wayne. That. And along with the, the man who shot Liberty Valance, another John Wayne. Right, but the way he talks uh, is just... Uh, it sounds like he's consistently drunk, so I, oh. I, that w- I was like, he is Max's part. Mm-hmm. He was also in How the West Was Won, so I think he has a type. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he was mainly a Western actor. Yeah, I mean, when his IMDb photo literally is just him in cowboy garb holding a fucking six-shooter. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, my, my god, he was born in Flagstaff, Arizona. This guy was born for it. <laughs> <laughs> you were born to be in pictures. A very specific type of pictures, but pictures. I mean, hey, you probably netted him a decent sum. <laughs> um, there, there was something I wanted. What was it? Oh, the inclusion of family? Um, oh, yeah, that. Because what Price Hollywood, she's sort of separated. You know, she's on her own, and perhaps it's picking up naturally where the first... It, it's sort of cut scenes, you could say, where mm-hmm. she's out on her own now working as a waitress, but you don't see anyone for her to relate back to, whereas in A Star is Born, they have scenes with the family and with the grandma... It gives her a speech that I really liked uh, mm-hmm. about when they were pioneering to the new part of the country and how she never gave up and how she buried her husband where he wanted to be buried. And I really like that. But they have they have this family that even though she's she's in this new wild place, she's working as a waitress uh, at the assistant director's uh, suggesting um, she still sort of has a baseline that she can relate to. Even mm. if they're not there, you know that they're there. And she has something to fall back on, as you see at the end of the movie where she's planning on moving back to North Dakota. So she has somewhere to go if she hits her lowest point. Right. And I thought that was interesting. They sort of built her a safety net into the story just in case things went really badly. Yeah, which is like... Which actually, if, unless you have like more to talk about on this point, which actually kind of will lead me into a complaint I have about A Star Is Born. No, uh, no, that's fine. Ta- that's just something I noticed. I don't it, think I have anything to say on it at this point. It's well, it's just it's things like that where it's like it has the safety net thing, and it has the main character be you know pretty generic feeling in a lot of ways, and all these other like if she's very like you know she's. She, the the way I've always thought about it, it's like she's a redheaded character in this kind of a redheaded lady character in this kind of movie. She's meaning she is flawed, but she is also hopelessly generic. And so, it as my big complaint is that so much of A Star Is Born is just moments of of course it's this or of course it's that. It feels very much like one of those old movies where everything feels like a trope of itself even though it probably set the trope in the first place. Whereas in What Price Hollywood, it seems to have a bit more teeth, 
like the main you know the main lead she has you know um she has more moments of just being outright hostile towards other characters she's more outspoken she's more outwardly ambitious just as a character in general and she has kind of more of a strength to her than this uh, than esther in um a star is born it's just so much of a star is born just feels like it's a very safe version of what price hollywood like what price kind of really it kind of did some weird stuff like you know it had her running off with this lush of a director type in any other situation that's like oh like that's not something you want to tell it, it, it seems like they kind of clean that up for a star is born it's more saying oh girls you don't want to run away with this random drunk director who's just doing all these things willy-nilly you want to run away with this starlet like this kind of you know big name actor type who's attractive in every way and who's who's also a flawed character so he's not perfect but he's still very good for you in a way and so it's just so much of it just feels like a watered down version of a more intense and ultimately kind of interesting story okay no, I, I agree with you. I actually have two points to go with this. One, just so we make something clear, because I don't think I mentioned it at the beginning. Yeah. Um, so What Price Hollywood is actually a film, came out in 1932, which is two years before The Code was introduced for motion pictures. Mm. So this is actually a pre-code movie, which okay. allowed it to be racier and sexier, because there wasn't a code that they had to adhere to. Whereas Wait, A Star do- is Born falls in the code period where there are very strict rules they have to apply by or else their film would not be released. Not to say that, that there aren't other things that they could do, but there are some some things that I feel they were held back by studios from doing because they felt it would be too racy or out there for audiences. I do remember thinking that, because at the beginning of, uh, you know, What Price, there's a scene where we it shows... Um, you know, Mary getting like dressed to go to work and like getting dressed up for the evening, and it just straight up shows her like putting on stockings and everything with a near like just up yeah. the skirt shot. Where I'm like, holy crap, that's that's racy by today's standards. Yeah, they didn't have to play by any rules before yeah. 1934. Yeah, and so uh, like that that really surprised me, and I was like, oh okay, that's this is just kind of doing its own deal. Which I did, I I realized that there was a code for like there were like a set of codes for you know, early Hollywood, I just couldn't, I just didn't know when it got implemented. I could have sworn it would have been before that. Right. Well, I think it was written around 30, but it wasn't introduced until 34. Right. So, uh, the other point I wanted to make is jumping off of yours. That's actually something that I remember thinking is correct me if I'm wrong, but in what price Hollywood, she goes to the screen test and she's awful because she has so way, too much ambition her eyes are bigger than her plate and so she has to practice and train and that's sort of a flaw of her mm-hmm. you get to see her be a terrible naive actress and max actually not to her face but is like yeah we might need to get someone else to do this she's not doing it and then she's like okay i gotta get better at this they don't really i don't remember them having a scene like that in a star is born i'm pretty sure it's just like all right uh we'll have the screen test soon and then she goes straight to signing a contract and changing, having her name changed. I think there's there's a brief moment of it. I 
think I honestly can't remember a lot of that. Those earlier scenes kind of kind of fly by my memory for some reason. But if there was a scene of it, it was brief. I know okay. they had to do like, a, like I know she had to do like something with like a posture coach at the very least because she had to reinvent herself into this new character like Vicky Lester. Right. But I don't know whether or not she explicitly had they explicitly did the screen test and they were like, OK, no, this is terrible. Right. So, yeah, I didn't remember a scene like that happening, so I was curious. Yeah, it uh, it was more focused on the idea of this girl, this pure innocent girl is not must be broken down into this new different system versus the original one was like, no, she's just a bad actress right now. It's just like yeah. which is a bit more which it feels a lot more realistic. Mm-hmm. It's like she does she, like from the day from, you know, the it seems like in you know, Star is Born from day 1 um, Esther is like from moment one we see her Esther is just this pure pinnacle who deserves everything in the world because of her ambition and her d- ability to do all these things despite the harsh critics of Hollywood telling her she can't she's not going to be nothing versus Mary just being like <laughs> oh no she's using her her wits to yeah and she's taking advantage of the situation to take advantage of this very drunk popular director to try and hang out with him to try and get a spot and then Ultimately, it shows she's not actually that good, but she self-improves to get good enough. Right. And then that actually ends up paying off. And not and to just, mention, Esther's mean aunt tells her that she can't do it. But and her grandma how, knows better. And then how that one casting you know, coach was like, oh, you'll, there's only a one in 100,000 chance you'll get in. And it's like, uh, fucking shush. <laughs> that was kind of cool. The uh, When she first goes in and she's like, I'd like to apply to be an extra... And the woman gets up from the desk and shows her all of the uh, that was yeah. telephone operators where it's like, you see all those lights? Those are all people that have dreams just like yours. Yeah, I did at, like I, that. At first, I didn't know where that was going. I thought she was like, okay, you'll start here. I, I thought it was like, we don't have jobs for act for actresses right, or for extras right now, so you're going to be working as a telephone operator. And it's like, well, this is very different from the original movie. Yeah, it's like, but, what the uh, heck? But no, I thought that was cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, just, I, I really. That's more did... representative than a than just saying a number, anyways. Yeah, is exactly. showing something like that than just saying a statistic. Right, but she Way did end impactful. up saying it's a statistic, anyways, as well. She, she did, but <laughs> since they had that in there, I just sort of it. I didn't feel like it mattered. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I just, I feel like the growth arc of Mary is a lot more believable. And ultimately more admirable than that of Esther's. Because Esther just kind of seems like everything kind of gets not necessarily handed it, handed to her, but a lot of it does seem like luck. Um, right. Versus, you know, Mary's clearly been working at this one particular restaurant for a long time. And she's seen directors come in and out all the time. And she's trying to work her best to do it. And, this, and now what we're seeing is her one time she actually got one to take her on. And versus, you know, Esther gets there within like two weeks. She's gotten her big break. Yeah, it happens pretty. It does happen pretty quick. Yeah. Well, she said she's been there when she goes into the extra office. She does say that she's been there a month, though. I don't know if I buy that because what has she been doing for a month? She really wanted to get into the acting business. Yeah, because we don't actually see her doing any kind of other job other than maybe she was waitresses that one place. Yeah. And I mean, that was after the fact, too. Exactly. That was after she said she's been there a month. So either she's been bumming around doing nothing, or she went to a bunch of places before that that we didn't see, or she's just a liar. 
Yeah. As she so, would, like, that, which is a very possible thing. She was just being like, oh, you know, to try to make her situation better. Right. Maybe make herself seem a little less... Desperate. Starry-eyed, doleful. Oh, yeah. Which I can't... Which She's not exactly the smartest cookie. I don't think she would have been smart enough to pull that off. <laughs> like, if, like <laughs> between the two of them, she is definitely not the smarter one. Maybe she just lied because she didn't actually lie. She forgot how long she'd been there. Yeah, that makes sense. She'd probably she, be like, "Oh, it feels like I've been, it feels like I've been here for a month." I believe that. Yeah. Um, yeah. if we're if we're gonna keep on this theme, by the way, <laughs> I mentioned in A Star Is Born the grandma's speech at the beginning. I really liked. Mm-hmm. Sort of, they you you're gonna have to give your heart a part of you. That was everything that she said meant a lot, and I thought that it was said in the right way. And just old women in in old Hollywood are always portrayed as badasses. Oh, so yeah. I really enjoyed that scene. Um, her speech at the end of the movie was very disappointing. A little. It's like <laughs> that was nor <laughs> she she sort of brings it around near the end. Like you can't give up. Don't be a quitter. You can do it. You know, just which by the end it's a bit too late for me. But she starts it out by being like, "Oh, quit whining." I'm sorry I ever gave you that money. It's like, lady, her husband just died. What is wrong with you? Yeah, like, I, have, like we can have this like, conversation this very later. Different. <laughs> like, after the mourning period, at least a little. Yeah, I was like, what is going... What is this? Yeah. I liked you, and now I... You show up for a second scene, and you try to destroy everything that you created in the right. first scene for this character. And I guess it's... And this isn't really, like... A particular point, but like I, I was thinking about that. It's like, why were a lot of old Hollywood old women portrayed as these badasses? But then I thought about literally what she says at the beginning: old women in old Hollywood literally probably migrated across the country. And yeah, then, in those big pioneer wagons, and yeah. they watched death, and they had to bury their loved ones. They've probably been through the civil fucking war. They like, might have been bitten in the deserts, yeah, the plains, I guess. So, like, everyone's grandma back then would have been a freaking badass because they're still around at that point. <laughs> right. Like, I do like that line she says at the beginning. She's like, take this money. I've been saving it for my funeral, but I don't think I'm ever going to die. <laughs> exactly. And it's also even cooler to think about. It's like, they live in North fucking Dakota. Having been to North Dakota in the modern era, it takes a badass to live there. I can't imagine how it <laughs> used to be. It's just, yeah, it's... That is really cool to think about. There, there should have been more movies about them. Just about them? Yeah. Yeah, just centered on them. Or, like, watching their entire lives go through, like, from the Oregon Trail all the way up. Or, you know, I guess Dakota Trail, which is, like, you may it most of the way, but you're like, nah. <laughs> I guess I'll settle here. Or, like, one of the, like, eight million. Or, like, one of the, you know, one or two major, um, like, government things are like, hey, if you go out to this area and settle it, we'll give you free land. <laughs> I'll it's take it. Bo- it's utterly worthless, and the only thing you can grow are onions and sheep. But that's it's free land. I'll still take it. You can grow sheep. I'll take it. Yeah. I. And so. I, and fun fact, <laughs> listeners, that's how my family got here. <laughs> Started off as dirt poor sheep farmers in Montana. I'm glad you've come so far. Yeah. Now I'm a dirt poor podcaster. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> my career. <laughs> Um, we were so talk bringing that up. I actually, I'm kind of wondering if it would have been better had the grandma not showed up again. 
what if instead they had the aunt go there and she's like mean to her like i told you told you couldn't do it blah 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 it, but then it's like are you really going to quit and her hardness makes esther realize no this is what i wanted all yeah. along i think maybe is... like either that or maybe the the aunt kind of has like not necessarily a change of heart but has the same hardness but telling her in the other direction She's like, I, she says like, oh, I knew you couldn't have made it. Or it's like, or not necessarily that. She's like, oh, come on. You went all this way and you complained to me for, you know, years of your life to be able to do this. And now you're just giving it up. It's like right. that sort of thing. Like I, thought, I think she would have been better for that. Yeah. Like, I think that would have been, and it would have been a cooler, you know, change of heart, kind of extra, like little na- like extra nail in the. Well, I'm not going to say nail in the coffin. That's not the right phrase here, especially since Amanda's <laughs> died. Um, but, like, the extra, like, final push for her ultimate character arc, where she goes from star, like, doughy, like, doughy North Dakota girl to starlet with, like, you know, tough as nails type, who's been, who's actually been through the roughest parts of Hollywood at that point. Yeah. And, and referring to the, what are your thoughts on this? With that speech aside... I kind of think the ending is better in A Star is Born because she goes through that hardship and they have that really cool scene where where Max decides to kill himself where he sort of reflects on who he used to be. Right. Um but her when after she moves to Paris, that really quick Lonnie shows up, take me back. But da 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 that like that takes a lot away from me or for me. Yeah, I think it, it, it ruins a lot of it at the last possible minute. It's kind of like in that moment they both kind of switched themes really quickly, like in the new one, like in you know what price it has her go from I've been doing this all on my own, I'm a badass, I can do this, and then it goes to I'm just a doughy you know person who needs her husband back sort of deal, versus a star is born she's completely alone at this point and with her both mentor and lover at that point dead she has to take up and be like no i'm not standing on anyone's shoulders anymore i've become my own person but i still owe it to them and so i'll honor them in that respect yeah it it does it is an it is an incredible ending like i have to give it to it like that's i mean that line alone hello this is mrs norman uh Shit. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> it's like Maine. I almost said Norman Mailer. It's Norman Maine. Yeah. I, Norman Maine. That's, that's fucking. Uh, oh, this iconic line that I can't remember. Um, <laughs> the iconic character whose name I forgot. The iconic, the, the iconic line. Hello, I am Norman Bates. <laughs> I'm here to murder I'm you. I'm Norman Lear. I'm here to murder you. <laughs> um, I am my mother. Um, I am Norman Fell. <laughs> I'm Norman Osborne. I'm the Green Goblin. <laughs> <laughs> we anyway. can't do this now. Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, anyway, like it's it's such an iconic line, and just like that final shot and everything, it is an incredible ending for as much crap as they get the rest of the movie. It is definitely it, having Lonnie come back in the original. It does kind of take away from really that whole arc. It's just like, Lonnie, I, I kind of hoped, not necessarily that Lonnie would have been gone forever. Maybe, like, have him come back and s- at least be, be as a friend. Maybe to kind of 
help round things out a little bit, but the whole full-on take-me-back sort of thing, that I was like, all right, because of course. <laughs> Especially since he essentially has their son kidnapped by detectives. Yeah. Like, that's a Sorry. thing that happens right before he asks her to take him back. Yeah, that's a little much. Jeez. Yeah, it's like... I mean, I guess that's just kind of how they had The rest of the it. film is so good, too. Yeah. Which, I guess, back in the day, that's really the biggest thing you could do that you'd have to get someone's attention so you didn't exactly have cell numbers at that point i mean i mean true just in general i but yeah that doesn't make it okay i i don't even think the situation should have been there at the ending because it's like a complete shift like even if he was like will you take me back and then she says no and then it cuts to i still wouldn't have liked it like don't even have that in there that's such an abrupt thing we focused on max for so long why do we care about this right now it does seem kind of like they didn't know how to end the movie at that point because they couldn't they rightly couldn't have ended it right at max's suicide that would have been too depressing yeah but like you know they didn't have the but they still had a lot of loose ends i guess in that one which i do appreciate a star is born having less loose ends in that regard like you know not having the extra sun bit and having you know the mentor and lover be the same character which made some other other loose ends, like with the assistant director and everything, and like the, yeah, and like the press agent. Which can I just say very briefly for the press agent? Why the hell was he a mobster? One, I don't know. Two, he was my favorite character in the movie. Yeah, same. <laughs> like honestly, it's just like he was completely unironically either he was somewhere in between like Scarface police officer and Scarface, well, Scarface. <laughs> Lionel Stander is so delightful <laughs> as a prick. <laughs> yeah, really. Oh my god! It's just I I kept seeing him on screen. Like when he first shows up, he's like in the police station. I could have like because he's talking about you know Norman was like having a joy ride in an ambulance. I I could have sworn he was going to be like, oh, this is just some random cop. I was like, no, he's his press agent. What? <laughs> <laughs> that'd be like if i had like i had like a manager or um an a or like just an or like a casting agent but he just talked like a pirate for no apparent <laughs> reason he was just like super cockney and had an eye patch but he was completely for all intents and purposes just like a normal like kind of pretty boring dude that but gives he, him more character i guess like i think that i I swear they must have just picked up this guy from when he was working on like another mobster movie or something. He was like, "Hey, can you show up for a couple scenes?" He's like, "I can't break character. That's fine." <laughs> <laughs> they pulled him over from Soundstage Three. Yeah, it's, it's just, I I love him so much. <laughs> he is great. And if we're talking about favorites, I there are a lot of great characters in in What Price Hollywood, mm-hmm. but honestly, Julius. The producer, uh, <laughs> Mr. Sax, he is great. For oh, yeah. one, I, I love people with foreign accents, especially in movies like like in older films. Of course. But he is so fun. He reminds me a lot of... Uh, what would the, was the character's name in the original Ocean's Eleven? Who Sinatra oh. and Dean Martin kept, kept messing with. Oh, he, the, the Greek guy. Yeah, I loved him, too. I cannot remember his name, I, but I it's on the tip of my tongue. I'm going to look it up. All right, that's fine. But 
he was a great character, and it actually, because Max, Max is one of my favorite characters too, and they have really great play between them, mm-hmm. especially that scene where they're at the pool, right after, it, it's a little after uh, Lonnie and Mary get married, and they're at the pool talking about movies uh, to make, and, uh, oh, what is it? Sax is like, oh, I bought these pictures. One is a mythological creation film, and the other is this. Oh, and yeah. Max, Max is like, I don't want to direct either of those. You yeah. should, you should read them before you, before you buy them. And he stands up. He goes, I can read. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Oh, also, uh, the guy's name was Spiros Asibus. Okay. Yes. Yeah. The very, very Greek. <laughs> <laughs> very much so. May as well named him Euro. Is but, that racist? Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> maybe I don't care. <laughs> the Greeks have had a hard time of it lately. I shouldn't. I shouldn't play. Make fun of them. I'm not also, gonna get into also. That. Hello, train by making the loudest noise ever. My God. <laughs> it's all right. I can't hear it. Oh, okay, that's good. Well, my microphone might have heard it. So. Okay. Say I heard the one the, earlier. Say hello to the seven o'clock train audience. I heard the one earlier. I just ignored it. Yeah. Um, so, wh- what do you think, though? Who do you like in these? Let's oh. get some characters in there. I, I mean, I've already praised Mary up and down, so she's probably my favorite character in really any both of the films. Uh, right. Hmm. Who's uh, there? There are a lot of just like I, I actually kind of like the boarding house guy. In, um, you know, a star. Oh, is in born. a star is born. Because he's like he's equal parts like a genuine good guy and that kind of gruff, ugh, kind of like uh, oive sort of deal. Because like there's a moment in the scene in the movie where it's like he's berating the girl, like he's writing up the bill for um, Esther. And he's like, oh, if she just paid me, all this wouldn't be a problem. But then he immediately takes it back out of the thing and tears it up because he, like, I guess feels sorry for her or, like, wants to help her out or something. But then immediately afterwards, he gets really annoyed because she gets a call in the middle of the night and that she has to give off. <laughs> I like that scream that he does. Yeah. <laughs> Would you tell him it's three o'clock in the morning? Yeah. And then, um. and then it falls up immediately <laughs> like he's going back to... Like, he, he's waiting at the top of the stairs as she sulks back into her room, like, kind of guiltily. And then he just kind of accidentally walks into a lamp and it just pops. <laughs> like he, I forgot just goes, about that. And he just goes, oh. It's like, it's the only, it's just, it's, they had to have some way of ending the scene, but they just had to keep kicking the shit out of him. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I felt kind of bad for him by the end. What, I gotta, I gotta know, what is his motive? Is he playing? Is he playing the field? Because I sort of thought about this. He seems to flip flop between his emotions, like what he is thinking, and that really comes to light when when um, Danny, the the assistant director, when he's first introduced at the boarding house, and uh, Esther runs up to him and she's like, "Oh, I just love to be in pictures. I got to be in pictures," and he like screams at her. <laughs> While he's berating her, he like gives a nod to the guy at the desk and the guy at the desk like agrees with him. He's like, Oh yeah, you told her. And then she runs off crying and he's like, now look what you did. (laughs) I (laughs) I thought that was really strange. I was like, what, whose side is he on? Or does he just not care? Cause these are all 
just tenants to him. Honestly, like, I, there's a like, there's a certain point with me where like I try to analyze stuff, but I think there's just a certain point I just have to tell myself this is just a badly written character. I think <laughs> it's like I mean, that's possible much, for as much crap as we give ourselves like to analyze and all that sort of stuff. In movies, old and new, there is just a certain point we can go. This is just wasn't well written. <laughs> like, they, just, they don't know they what the character know, is. They weren't doing a good job with this one. <laughs> so it's just, I really just think like he's just an extra character to kind of propel things, to kind of fill in the pothole of where is she living? And so it also gives the excuse of how she encounters, you know, the other director guy. Yeah, because he has to introduce her to Danny as he's going to his room or coming down from his room, something like that. So yeah. I guess she wouldn't know otherwise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> also, so I, I should say I, they do get good mileage out of him with him screaming and running into lamps, and he's a comic relief character among which there are a couple, I guess, in the film. But still, yeah, because I mean, he eventually disappears because she doesn't have to live there anymore. So it's just like, yep. all right, well, he's gone. So yep, is the assistant director. Just get him out of here. He's more just like the act one comic relief. Yeah. Also, I should say I did find the, uh, the rules don't apply. It was directed by and stars uh, Warren Beatty. Oh, okay. Yeah, that guy. I know him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wrote that. I wrote the title down earlier. I'm gonna look up, look it up uh, IMD- later. IMDb is a bit scathing on it. I only gave it like a five point two. Well, IMDb is not necessarily critic reviews; it's audience. So we'll see about that. True. Um, or sorry, five point seven. It's the same way Rotten Tomatoes works. Anyways. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said anyways. I didn't necessarily know where I wanted to go with that, though. I mean, uh, like, I mean there's, the problem with these older movies is that there's a certain... like, uh, Well, not necessarily with older movies, but with more dramatic plots like this. That there's not a whole lot to go on beyond like just the immediate story and immediate, you know... Um, motivations of the main characters because there's no major effects or major plot like devices that can be criticized because a lot of it's just driven by you know genuine actions by the character rather than you know we're in space and we need to not be in space or something like that (laughs) or like some or like you know it's the future and we can fall through the entire earth we can that's that's a major plot point in in and of itself so it's it's hard to get more mileage out of it beyond that because we've clearly kind of kind of gutted you know um a star is born for its kind of more simple like not necessarily simplisticness by comparison but it's just not as well made honestly it's more audience like, it's more audience friendly really yeah that's true audience that that's what i i gotta i've gotta figure out a term for that it's just like you know it's the it's the frosted mini wheats of the of a movie Versus like Are a, you bringing this back comparing movies to food? <laughs> I, you did this a couple episodes ago where you were like, this is the Big Mac. I haven't eaten yet. I, I gotta <laughs> stop doing this when I'm hungry. <laughs> I like what you're doing. You can you can you can do it all you want. I mean like it's just like, you know, but you know what I mean. Like it's that very kind of cons- like I mean, like you said yourself, it's a very consumer based version of an already superior story. Yeah. What it's, price Hollywood is the Toblerone? <laughs> and, you know, a Star is Born is, what, the Twix? The Twix. The, I the don't, Hershey the bar? Call it. Probably the Hershey bar, actually. Yeah. 
You know what? That's actually probably a good apropos. Yeah, that's actually a pretty good one. <laughs> I love it when right. I accidentally do something smart. <laughs> no, I wish but... it happened more often. <laughs> You're right. For both of these, they're they're pretty well just dramatic. They're also kind of equal parts romance, romance uh, films that focus on rise and fall. Yeah. Even though they don't, those stories are kind of happening at the same time. Uh, mm-hmm. There's not there's not much to go off of from there. I and mean, it is, and it, and I can't even really say. I mean, we can give like general cultural differences since it is so far in the past that we can just compare it to our own. But we can't really compare them to each other because they really do. They happen. They're made within five years of each other. There's no major cultural shifts other than the codes of Hollywood being implemented, which we've already brought up. Yeah. It's like, it's, you know, if we, if slash when we start doing some of the newer versions of it, which God help us if we do, that's going to take a while. Um, that'll probably be a good time to compare them then. But otherwise, a lot of it's just so steeped really in itself that it's hard to kind of say anything about it. Like Hollywood, I mean... Hollywood for years has always just had a thing of sucking itself off. It's just like, I mean, you can look at the, um, oh, what was it? Was it the artist like that? The, the silent film released in like 2012 or something. Oh yeah. Didn't that win? It was it at won, least nominated for best picture. It, I don't think it won best picture, but the main actor got best actor. Okay. Yeah. I remember that year. Yeah. And then um, we never saw him again. <laughs> he disappeared. He walked into yeah. the ocean, never came out. I mean, that's basically what happened with Leonardo DiCaprio, so. <laughs> He's back. Oh, yeah. Uh, there is some, if you don't mind me sucking some people off for a oh, bit. Oh, go, go right ahead, uh, If anyone's gone. <laughs> I'll just sit back and watch. <laughs> um, uh, it, it, with the exception of Norman's death scene... The cinematography in A Star is Born, I feel, is pretty tepid. It doesn't bit. do a whole lot outside of, here's a shot of people and they're doing stuff. Uh, what Price Hollywood, even when it doesn't work, they do a lot of unique things to try and portray people's emotions, people's emotional states, what they're what they're going through. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, and a lot of the times it works. The only one that was kind of jarring to me is when Mary's screen test her successful screen test is first seen by everyone. And, uh, Sax is talking about making her a household name. She's in the frame with the board members and with Sax and Max. But while yeah. he's giving this speech, it cuts to her for a brief second where she's like starry eyed looking up into nothing. Yeah. That with one a, was weird. With a curtain, that. with a curtain behind her, I guess, because she's imagining herself in the spotlight. That one was jarring, but was... everything else I thought was pretty cool. I always thought that shot in particular was just because they needed a filler shot. Like, they needed to cut that one scene in half, so they needed a random filler shot. Um, that could be true. If they just kind of use it as tape, in a way. Yeah, yeah, we'll patch this together a little bit, but yeah. the ac- but then, other like, actors couldn't make it. Yeah, otherwise, yeah, there's a lot of cool scenes. Like, there's, you know, when, she's, it, when it first shows her montage of hitting stardom, it shows her, like with like all these sparklers and stuff overlaid kind of like lightly over the frame as it shows her like getting closer to the camera as it literally shows her like growing in popularity. And then right after Max dies, it shows the exact same scene, but opposite where it shows her 
sulking and sad as she slowly sinks to the background as this you know scandal overtakes her. Yeah, um, those those scenes were actually kind of scary too because they're at least in the first one, um, mm-hmm. because it's sort of showing her success. At the very end, there's a bunch of hands clapping overlaid over the darkness, and it looks like Porky and Wacky Land. That was <laughs> kind of scary, but I know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah, the where Max is in the dressing room right before he commits suicide with that gun. Yeah. Uh, he looks into the mirror and he, it's sort of him like blinking really hard, like dazed while it's, it's overlaid with uh, scenes from him in a top hat and him, the jail bars. It's like him reflecting on his life and how far he's fallen. And it does it again, right? When he shoots himself, it does like a quick, like super, rapid fire a bunch of shots from earlier in the film yeah which i actually loved i was like oh that's actually really cool i haven't seen I, that in a i guess films. it's sort of representing his life flashing before his eyes is sort of the generic yeah. feel of that but it's still well done that's it also i it's have also to praise really... the editing i guess it's not even necessarily cinematography but the editor who worked on that did very well it's also really cool because it's also for the benefit of the audience to feel for it because you know we've been with that character the entire film and, you know, sometimes by the end of a film, you kind of earlier scenes sometimes kind of fall to the background as other scenes have taken our forefront in the memory. But then it immediately shows all those other moments we've seen of him, of having like him at the top, him at the bottom. And that just shoots by really fast where it's like, oh, shit, this guy's dead. Like he's just yeah. straight up ended it, ended it all. And it's like I, I saw that scene. It actually hit me harder than I thought it would. I was like, wow, that's actually really impactful. Yeah, so I thought I thought that was brilliant doing that and just how simple it was it's like it's like back in scarface like that one transition of the tommy gun firing as the over the calendar over the calendar pages being ripped off where it's like that's gotta be like highlight of the year for me oh yeah like oh my god it's just like i love little cool transitions like that especially in early hollywood because that really was one of those moments of low technology means greater creativity and so that's just, it's like little moments like that that really felt like that happened. Yeah. So I just, I, I, it, it did a, like, what price Hollywood did a lot of cool shots. They did. And, and yeah, not to leave the stars born out, I feel like most of it was, like I said, pretty by the books. But it is really beautifully shot, even if not beautifully oh, yeah. edited. Uh, at the ocean when he's walking into it and it shows his clothes getting washed on the beach and you just know. He's not coming back. Even if you hadn't seen What Price Hollywood, which you oh, had yeah. before, you oh, know yeah, no, he's I, gone. Oh, I knew. I was like, oh, no, that's happening. Like, that one did get me. Because, like, like, and Suicide's always just such a dark subject in and of itself, obviously. And so even that happening, I was like, it's hard to do that scene without it being impactful. But they still did it really well. And it's like, it's also right. just, I should just say also, um, A Star is Born beautiful film just in general like it's the first use of like actual good technicolor film like it literally even says on the trivia like before that all technicolor film had been very garish looking a lot of the color was too like like had the contrast turned up way too much but this one was a lot more muted more realistic it was the first one that was actually lauded very well for it and then it it made way for the i think the director actually the what was the director of this one william Um, William A. Wellman. Yeah, and didn't he also direct Gone with the Wind? I I think so, or he was an yeah. assistant director. I saw something like that. 
Yeah, like it says, like um, at least on the trivia, that um, this kind of helped pave the way for, you know, the masterpiece Gone with the Wind, and it itself also being fully in color, which wow, also done very well. It's like, it's this worth g- notice. Sorry, oh yeah, it's like, but really, I was just gonna say, it's like really, um, A Star Is Born. It was pretty much the trendsetter for color film from that point, or at least it like it made it so that it was possible, and then Gone with the Wind made it the trendsetter. Right. Well, it's worth noting as well. I I didn't read this on a trivia page, but I know I read it somewhere. I th- I believe this is the only Technicolor film that uh, Janet Gaynor, who played Esther, it's the only Technicolor film she ever did. I think most yeah. of what she did was silent film work. Or not silent, but black and white. Um, yeah. So to, to somehow, uh, I guess, avoid all the really outlandish colors of early those early non-black and white pictures to go into something that does have fairly beautiful lighting and landscapes with these matching colors that don't, don't necessarily ruin scenes. I think that's really unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a uni- unique for her career. Yeah. That she could end up being in something like this and somehow avoid the ones that look worse. Yeah. Um, also, uh, talking about the suicide at the end of that. I also like how dark it was in that, uh, in most any film made now, a drama, mainly a romantic drama, but films like that, a character like Libby, uh, the press agent Mm -hmm. would have gotten comeuppance for what they were doing. But in this one, Norman is dead. And then it cuts to him talking about, it's hilarious that he's dead and he hated him and it doesn't matter. And then nothing happens with that. Yeah. I did like that. They kind of, they, they, despite all the other moments of like, Oh yeah, this is the most idealistic situation at the end. It really did kind of be like, no, this, this stuff's harsh and it's not going to be forgiving. Yeah. The and only like people, idealistic like bad people part, will win sometimes. Yeah. The only idealistic part about the ending at all is that she's somehow able to move on from it. And, and that's more so life. Not necessarily yeah. that's how everyone works in life, but that is a part of life that doesn't seem to be pandering. Right. When it's done, it's just like, well, that's what you're, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And that really does get summed up with the last line. Like, that yeah. kind of is the whole big thing of she really isn't moving on, and that's okay. Like, she's very, like, in any other situation, like the ultimate parallelism is she's completely on her own and there's no connection to Norman at all at that point, which is practically what happens in what price Hollywood. She's pretty much completely separate from Max at that point. But in doing that last act of calling herself Mrs. Norman, uh, Mrs. Norman, it's just, it kind of wraps it up a bit nicer. Like it's like, okay, this is actually how someone would deal with the situation. Yeah. Or at least, at least it's, it's how someone would deal with the situation put into a line rather right. than actually having to show the deep emotional impact it would have on the, on such a character. And I definitely did. I did appreciate that as well. Yeah. But so, um, you know, for as much as crap as we have given A Star is Born, it really does wrap it up at the end. <laughs> oh, yeah, it does it. And I think it does it way better than the other one. Um, yeah, Definitely. So, uh, last bits before we before we really wrap it up. Any shots or scenes of note that you want to bring up that we haven't already talked about ad nauseum? Uh, I mean, 
I think the, my favorite shot in particular, at least for what Bryce Hollywood, really just that entire ending dialogue between Mary and Max. Like it was just, it was really intense and poignant between the two of them. It was like, okay, yeah, these are two people that have known each other for years and have really just kind of come to what is clearly the end of the line for Max. It's like whether whether each of them know it full well or not at that point, but it's it's just how it, it was shot well. The lighting was great. The acting was great. It's I love the whole thing of it. Right. That was probably my favorite bit. Other than that, I can't really think of anything in particular. Yeah, that's fair. I think yeah. we actually did cover on all the stuff that we really enjoyed. I can't think of anything else either. I was just curious. Yeah, these are both uh, very good movies. Yeah, so Within, to a point, obviously. <laughs> yeah, if we're gonna jump, if we're going to jump into this now, based we we say this a lot, but based on what I have said, at least I think it's fairly clear which one I prefer. Though I have to say, for the first time in a really long while, it is really hard for me to decide. Mm. I haven't, I haven't really had a situation like this. I don't think since one of the earlier episodes where I it's sort of a toss up for me but right. in the but in the end especially with what i've been saying what price hollywood i think does a lot better mm-hmm. if only cuz it has less restrictions for itself that that's true i feel if it was made with code a lot of that would be stripped mm-hmm. uh and that should be and that should be noted really for really for anything we end up doing is like back in the day when codes were a lot stricter than they are now compared to each other it's sometimes unfair for not for certain films not doing certain things but you know at the same time you know there have been films who have worked around that in one way or another we both well i i mean going off of that scarface came out the same year as what price hollywood yeah um, oh yeah that's that's obvious yeah but scarface 80 83 i think it was the one with al pacino yeah. did a lot more because i mean that's in the 80s that's 50 years away it can do Uh a lot more but that doesn't necessarily mean it did it better so i mean yeah it goes both ways there can be there can be workarounds as well to -hmm. make just a better picture and i feel like i feel like even without code they could have they could have made an equally good picture with what price hollywood would it have been better i don't know but i i don't think it would have been bad no and neither of these movies are bad. Like, for as much as crap as I have given A Star is Born, it's like, this one was, it wasn't that hard for me to pick, because I, like I, like I always say, I always default down to what I think is just a better made film, especially when they're so close together in time frame. But it still was, A, a Star is Born still was very good. It's, just, it's hard to fault. It's hard to choose. It's hard to choose it over, you know, what price, when it's just like so... There's so many cool things that what price did. Yeah, I mean, if we're if we're getting right down to it, uh, when we compare when we compare these movies, uh, one of one of the pictures, whether it deserves it or not, always seems to be getting beaten down or given the blunt end of the stick, because yeah. we're comparing aspects of the films, and even if it's just our opinion, one of them is going to be doing it better than the other. So it's gonna seem as if we're being more negative mm-hmm. whether we actually are or not yeah and i wish there were more films that were 
closer in quality in general. But the problem with, the, by the very nature of remakes, one of them is going to pretty much always be worse, even yeah. if it's the even if it's the older one compared to the newer one. It's just by the very nature. It's like either a it's a bad movie that was remade to be made better or B it was a good movie that was tried to remade to recapture its magic, which never works. So. Right. And going off of that, I mean, if a star is born had been a remake of what price Hollywood, then the chances are it could have been bad because it would have been trying to do the exact same things, but with more limitations, but rather it was working off of that screenplay or the script, whatever, it mm-hmm. it was working off the script instead, so they were able to change more things around, and be- because it's a looser fit model, and they could fit it to to the restrictions that they were given, and they could turn it into a different story while still keeping the beats relatively the same. Right. So that definitely helped. I feel if it was a straight remake of the same picture, it probably would have turned out worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean- Still, what price Hollywood? Great freaking film. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm. I'm glad I own it. And you know what? Like we said, A Star Is Born is pretty good too. The 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 DVD that I bought for this movie has another film on it. Uh, Eternally Yours. I don't know its relation to A Star Is Born. I don't know why it's on the same disc, but I'm definitely gonna look into it and probably watch it here shortly. Because I feel like there has to be a reason it's on the same disc. Or at least in the same pack. So, mm. here's hoping that turns out well. Yeah. Hey, and heck, maybe we'll go see the, you know, we'll do, do something with some of the other A Star is Born movies, and maybe those will have done even better. Who knows? Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, in a perfect world, we would be covering one of them, or even the most recent one, uh, next week after this one, like we did with Halloween and oceans but we have something else planned so mm-hmm. we'll have to come back to that on uh, at a later date yeah we we got time <laughs> we do we we do you know hollywood's gonna keep making remakes but you know we do it at our own damn pace <laughs> we'll do <laughs> it's like we know we can't keep up with hollywood so we're doing it on our own yeah we gotta we gotta just roll with the pun i mean you mentioned it a couple weeks ago mm. maybe it was just last week that if we were to just go off of what Hollywood's doing, we would probably change the name of the podcast to Disney Remade It. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, as, as we speak, Disney is already in the process of remaking, like, fucking, what, four of their old classics into live action movies? Yeah. Two of I'm which not, already have trailers. I'm not that saying any. Jungle, that being uh, uh, Lion King and uh, Dumbo. Yeah, that being said, I'm not going to say anything particularly bad about them because I can't judge them just based off the trailers, especially since one is more of a teaser trailer than anything. But right. I will say that I don't necessarily have an interest in doing Aladdin or Lion King when they come out. Dumbo, oh, yeah, Aladdin is I want to do Dumbo when it comes out. Oh, same. I, I, I do. I, also, that I looks, love Dumbo. Yeah, and that new one, Tim Burton, it I don't know if it's going to be good or bad, but it looks interesting as hell. So I think Tim Burton's a good fit for it. Yeah, I mean that that the original is really scary. Yeah, it's, I haven't seen it since I was head. little, but it I remember it being scary. The clowns scared me the most. 
Right. So they had like those fitted faces. It was it wasn't even paint for all of them. It was like head masks. It's horrifying. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Wrapping up our dirty laundry. Yeah. Uh, it's like, we'll talk about we'll talk about that when it comes. Yeah. So uh, real quick, let me just give the rundown. Um, Please do. <laughs> We are on most uh, most podcast platforms out there, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, PodBay. Uh, if you want, please uh, rate us, review us, leave a comment, especially on iTunes, the iTunes platform, because that helps with the ranking a lot, get more people to see it. Uh, we're hosted at Anchor, and that's mostly where all the links that I post to the Twitter, when I remember to post the links to the Twitter, uh, that's where they'll direct you to, is to Anchor, but just keep in mind you can find them most, any podcast platform you have uh we have our website theyremadeit.com which acts as an archive and also gives you a link to a lot of the download places uh for the different platforms we have and i try to update that after every release that's theyremadeit.com uh theyremadeit at gmail.com sending emails there uh if you have any external reviews if you have any suggestions if you just want to send an email and say hi those would be uh appreciated or discarded i don't know um yeah just acknowledge that we and, exist that's always nice yeah and it remade on twitter it's there uh i think i've forgotten the last two times an episode has come out to post anything there but i'll try to get better about that uh <laughs> and and put stuff there but i think that's everything yeah that's about wrap it up next week right. we or not next week but you know next release period we won't be doing a review but we'll be doing a bit of something you know just keep an ear yeah. out for that one It'll probably end up being longer, too. I'm thinking around two hours, possibly even going a bit longer than that. But yeah. for the most part, it'll probably be unedited, unedited too. Like, I'll listen to it, but I, I don't think I'm going to add a bunch of stuff in. They remade it. Uncut. <laughs> Finally! <laughs> I, I want to hear more stuttering and stammering. <laughs> All the times where I fuck up my, you know, opener stinger. <laughs> Go download our podcast online. <laughs> Go watch our stuff. I mean, listen to. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 skip it. Like, Pass. As always, I'm your. I mean, as always, you're my. I mean, I've. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm your lovable host, Jacob. <laughs> and I'm Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> and also Stuart. And also me. But yeah. Does that mean we've signed off now? No, you're the one that does the... <laughs> oh, crap. You're not supposed it to break format. I don't know. <laughs> Where does the bit end and the you know the podcast begin? I guess wherever I put the cut. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just putting the random cut beeps randomly throughout. Just like... Eh, and with the beep, 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 beep. <laughs> I'll do it. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> to wrap up properly, as always, I am your host, Stuart. And I'm your host, Jacob. And we hope you have a lovely Christmas season. You know, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Shalom, etc. What is that? Uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Kooky Kwanzaa, and a respectful Ramadan. <laughs> Good night. Good night.
with the blonde type. Like I said, Latin types are coming back. Look at Clark Gable. He's through. Yeah, now listen. Not of coal cuts from Mr. Buck's office. You bet. Hey, listen. Latin types are coming back again. I just heard that big producer cracking into his yes man. What'd I tell you? You can fool some of the people all the time, but you can't never fool the American women. <laughs>